You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge. Now, Outdoor Edge is a knife company. We all know that. They offer a complete line of fixed blade knives, replaceable blade knives, and game processing kits, right? So any blade you need to break down an animal, these guys have it. Now, the cool thing about their replaceable blades is let's say you are in the middle of breaking down an animal and the blade goes dull. The only thing you have to do is push a button the blade pops out, you put a new blade in, it locks in tight, and you're back to breaking down that animal. You get it cooled down, you get it back to the truck faster, and you get more meat in the long run. So if you want to find out more information about all the blades, fixed, replaceable, and game processing kits that Outdoor Edge makes, visit their website outdooredge.com and if you want to save 30% on your purchase enter the discount code nation30 that's n-a-t-i-o-n 30 and that's outdooredge.com welcome to the land and legacy podcast we're your hosts adam keith and matt die this is your number one resource for all things land if you're interested in conservation habitat management hunting strategy and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. Adam is here, correct? Yeah, I'm here. Man, we've got a, a really exciting podcast lineup for this week. One that has taken some time, some additional research, some thought. And I think it's going to kind of settle the score and really lay out some good understanding of um, just what deer eat, what they're looking for, and how we can analyze it. So I don't want to take up too much time on intro this week because I know we're getting to a lot of really good discussion. So let's go ahead and reintroduce a, uh, a guest that we've had on the past. So Dr. Will Goolsby, are you there? I'm here. Man. What's happening? You know, just um, looking at some data on my screen to hopefully share with everybody today. Thinking about post season and opening up tomorrow in Alabama. Got one sitting in the stand so far in Georgia. Um, was unsuccessful, but saw some deer. Had a good time, and uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you guys. I, I think it's going to be super insightful for those people who are land managers to really just kind of. In, in a really big capacity comprehend what it is that deer eat and um, how we can analyze that. So I know you've got some thoughts that you want to share 
uh, on this topic. So we'll just let you kind of kick it off and um, we'll just go in, go in from there. All right. So you're giving me free reign, right? Free reign, <laughs> my, friend, my friend. All right. So, you know, in preparing for this, this podcast, you know, we, we decided that we wanted to talk about your year round nutrition. And I think one of the aspects of nutrition that we focus on the, the most is the F word, right? Forbes. <laughs> mm-hmm. We say, we say Forbes, you know, so often like we're beating a, a dead horse and that's for good reason. They've got the highest nutrient content of any plants that deer eat. Um, and they've got the highest digestibility at the same time. And, you know, so when you have that, that high protein package in a, in a very digestible plant, it's hard to deny the importance of those plants in a deer's diet. And you couple that with the fact that, you know, protein is the most limiting micronutrient or macronutrient rather, um, not just in deer's diet, but in any vegetarian's diet, it becomes a very valuable food resource. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got browse and browse is what we're going to be talking about. I think to a significant degree today. And what I mean by that is browse is just, um, woody plants and, and their parts, right? So when we say browse, that specifically means woody plants. I know com- it's common to refer to um, browse or use browse as a verb. We talked about this before we started recording. Um, when we're referencing, you know, deer that are um, moving around through their environment and eating, we call it browsing. But technically, the term browse means woody plants that deer eat. So browse is less nutritious than Forbes um, on the whole, and it has it's less it's lower in digestibility, right? But we can't discount the, the importance of browse as a food source because its biomass is much greater than that of Forbes across the landscape. And what's the other issue with Forbes? You know, they're only availability. Exactly. They're only available during a limited time of the year. So um, with that being said, and I've, you know, I've got other stats that I'm willing to jump into and, um, and talking about how frequently browse gets used and when, um, but I think the important point, you know, kind of in this introduction is that it doesn't need to be discluded or left out or uh, left out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And <clears throat> one of the thought processes that we had and kind of juggled back and forth is getting into this podcast is is you hear so many people discuss the protein level of a forage and that be the basis upon is it valuable or not? And, mm-hmm. and when you stack certain plants uh, that would be in a four category that, like you said, are protein packed, a lot of, a lot of total di- uh, digestible nutrients in it, you then compare that to Woody Browse, there's this, there's this big difference. And mm-hmm. it, it's like comparing apples and oranges when an apple and an orange are both really good for you. And you, and you probably yeah. need both of them, but you shouldn't really be comparing the two together because they both are valuable. Right. Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the, the idea behind this discussion. I, I think I was cutting you off when you, yeah. you were starting in there. You totally did. Um, yeah, oh well. <laughs> let's, I want to hear, Will, you talk about some of the, for people that may, you know, maybe they don't listen to us every week or they, and they just tuned in. What are some of the when they're trying to picture? Because I'm a visual guy. So when you're you were early on to this podcast and you say Woody Browse, 
Um, and then you talked about Forbes. What are some of your favorite woody browse species? And and not just, uh, and I'll clarify that whenever we get into it, but not just uh, the, the species, but the parts of that species that are being browsed. Right. Yeah, so the go-tos um, <clears throat> in, in my neck of the woods, and, and really a lot of these species are present throughout the whitetails range with few exceptions. But, you know, I think about, most of our vines, um, so like things like trumpet vine, for example, um, muscadine vines are a relatively uh, nutritious browse. Um, Greenbrier, yeah, has a relatively relatively nutritious winter hardy browse. Um, a lot of people don't think about blackberries as a browse, but blackberries can provide some browse and mostly what deer are eating when they eat blackberries they're eating the leaves not the stems themselves um for obvious reasons they're not palatable because they have thorns on them but um many people are surprised to know that the nutrient content of blackberry leaves is fairly high and that's a plant that i refer to as tardily deciduous which means you know it does drop its leaves in the winter time but it tends to hang on to them a lot longer than other deciduous species yeah um black cherry is another one um, that's prevalent throughout the whitetails range and is a fairly good browse species, dogwood, and a lot of your maple species as well. Mm-hmm. What about, you were mentioning vines. What about Matt's nickname? <laughs> Virginia <laughs> Creeper. <laughs> <laughs> that's from Virginia, so I always tell him that's his nickname, but yeah. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> I'm yes, sorry sir. to say this, Matt, but, you know, Virginia Creeper is just not one of my favorites. I don't see much utilization of it in my neck of the woods. <laughs> You had to make it personal. It's perfect. It's perfect. You had to make it personal. Yeah. We got Chainsaw Chad, which people seem to really like that one. I just can't get Virginia (laughs) Creeper to stick. (laughs) Oh, Oh, and and how can I I forget one more I have to point out? Because people who haven't, you know, been in these discussions before or learned about this are always surprised to hear that Poison Ivy is actually a relatively high-quality browse for deer. Yeah. 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 And very common. Absolutely. I mean, you can find that Sometimes too common for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What about um, when you mentioned Forbes, what are some of your top Forbes? To try to make that clear difference between the two. Right. Obviously, uh, annual ragweed, common ragweed. um, That's going to be, you know, most people's go-to, the number one um, plant that they mentioned as a Forbes. Let me ask you this, not to get sidetracked, but... You mentioned common ragweed. What about giant mm-hmm. ragweed? What has been your experience with that? I have not seen your utilization of giant ragweed. And I and I'm one and I ask you that specifically because I remember a conversation with Dr. Craig Harper a few years ago where he was very pro common ragweed and not really it was kind of a I think in in his book he ranks out like positive, neutral or negative. Um, and like that they don't eat it if it's negative, neutral, yeah, give it, I'm not real sure. It, I don't see a lot of brows, but I'm sure they do. And giant ragweed being one that was, was neutral and common being positive. But it seems like when we go west, it seems like giant ragweed is more preferred than common. And it's like, that's crazy. It, it, you know, the guys like you guys in the east, it's like, ah, oh, common, common. And, and I'm like, man, there's places where I'd rather see giant ragweed than common ragweed because it seems like they love it more. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I've experienced here is that we really don't have much, and I don't know what, where it occurs in other places. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in the West like you guys have, but um, our giant ragweed tends to be confined to floodplain areas, mm-hmm. and um, and we really it really has a very spotty distribution. Gotcha. And so it could be just one of those things that deer don't use it as much here because they don't encounter it as frequently because, yeah. you know, deer definitely learn um, their foraging habits. Yep. I, I think another factor that goes into some of that, too, is is the water content of it because we see it stuck pretty tightly to bottomland soils as well. So you get midsummer, late summer, and there's not much and it's been dry. That, mm-hmm. that least matter itself is going to be have more water in it. And, yep. and I think partly um, that digestibility and water content is driving some of that forage selection as well. In yeah. part Western um, that we've seen and, and a pretty high prevalence of giant ragweed. Yeah, totally. Gotcha. I would agree with that. Yeah. But yeah, so I mentioned common ragweed. Um, you know, I think about a lot of the Lespedeza species. Some of them are less preferred than others, um, but, you know, we've got we've got a variety of those that are out there. So a lot of the Lespedezas are preferred. Um, many of the Desmodium species, the beggar's lice, are moderate to high-quality forbs. Some of those can get a little bit woody. Um, you know, it just varies from one species to another. I generally consider those forbs, though. Mm-hmm. You know, partridge pea is pretty uh, moderate to high-quality, depending on the age and size of the plant and things like that. Yep. Um, the list goes on. Awesome. Yeah. I th- uh, hopefully for some guys, they can see the difference now where you get into, uh, woody browsers. I mean, there's, uh, the list is endless on both sides, but clearly a difference um, between the two. Yeah. But right. But with the Forbes, you know, most of your species that are legumes that are non woody legumes. And a lot of times that's, you know, guys don't know what that is, but you know, mm-hmm. generally speaking, um, most trifoliate forbs. So most most plants that are non-woody that have leaflet leaves with leaflets of three are going to be legumes, and they're generally relatively high in, in nutrient content. Gotcha. Perfect. So when – sorry, a quick pause there. When – we're looking at this forest selection across the year's time frame. Mm-hmm. You shared a graph with us. Uh, we've we've from, not familiar with that specific graph, but have looked and analyzed others of the usage of various forages across a, a, a year's time frame. And, and mm-hmm. it's going to vary a little bit from region to region based on climate, uh, based on length of growing seasons and such. But What's available? Right, exactly. What's available at different times of year. However, I think we ought to break down some of that information because that really goes to 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 look at what's available and then why they're preferencing these forages and why we need to look beyond just crude protein when we're analyzing forages and what we're calling good and what we're calling bad. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about the seasonal trends? Yes, yes. Yeah, so let's just start with Forbes because that's the one that, you know, we probably talk – you guys probably talk about the most on this podcast. It's what I know I talked about a lot with you guys last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we see 
We see deer use of forbs generally peak in spring and early summer. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is that's the time of the year where forbs are generally available. They're not available throughout the dormant season with few exceptions. Um, but most of them are not available throughout the dormant season throughout winter. And as, um, you get on into later summer, they start to senesce and decrease in their nutrient content, particularly like in crude protein values. Yep. In addition to that, that spring and early summer period of the year, as we all know, coincides with um, late gestation into fawn drop, nursing, and then all deer are putting energy into body growth, and then bucks are putting um, protein and energy uh, resources into antler growth as well. So not only are forbs more available during spring and early summer, but they're more highly preferred because deer need a diet that's high in protein to support those activities that they're, that they're participating in biologically. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that when you look at the cycles that an animal just goes through and how they utilize the landscape, the, the vegetation types, the forage, the diversity that's hopefully available to them. Um, when, when you look at it and you study it and you, and you know how all of it functions, you really, I guess I am, I think a lot of people are, but it's, it's like, this isn't just natural. It's supernatural. Like, like the, the timing of everything, the reliance mm-hmm. of these species, there's, it's such a, a beautiful design and creation that, it's it's so perfectly matched and timed up that their bodies are, are in tune with nature and the, what it's providing at those specific times. And it's really cool to study it and see that forage and diet selection um, and what's naturally available on sites that are highly managed. You may yeah. not, and that's the thing to, to those who are listening. If you don't, if you're in a low productivity site and you don't have the ability to observe deer consuming forbs readily in the spring and early summer that then you may not have that observation to to understand what we're talking about but when you have a highly managed site and you are observant and critical of what is out there and what deer are doing you see this just heavy heavy preference and that's when you see you know great fawning rates that's when you see great early antler development or you just see generally bigger body masses because overall you have this connection between the land the landscape what it's being offered how it's being managed and then it's directly tied into wildlife usage i think sometimes people try and separate land management and wildlife management but man they are so in tune with one another right that you can't separate them if you're a recreational land manager trying recreational excuse me landowner who's trying to improve the property for wildlife it's one and the same right if if you want to maximize everything and i think that these conversations are so great and enjoyable to have and i always get more energized when i have them because we a lot of times we get fixated either ourselves or in answering questions they're all the questions are also narrowly focused on managing habitat during the hunting season to maximize you know, harvest success, right? We're focused on like one food plot over here, one food plot over there. 
or maybe if you're a little bit more informed, you also realize the importance of summer nutrition. We're focusing on, you know, summer food plots or we're focusing on managing native vegetation to provide for those summer nutritional needs and requirements. But still, even in those conversations, we're talking about stand level management. I get really excited that when we start talking about these these cyclical seasonal trends, and this is really the ecology of the system. And this is where yeah. I feel like understanding this takes your management to a whole new level when you've got that holistic picture in mind and you understand what need, what deer need year round, and make sure that you're providing for that. Yeah, and, and one thing when 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 you talked about that, like with people. And they kind of progress, and it's food plots, and then it's you know some may- maybe prescribed fire to really promote summer forage of native species. But then you look at it, and you're like, fellas, antlers started growing a lot longer before before what you're focused on. Like they were they were yeah. growing long, early the, in the spring before we started that. Before yeah. you even bought the seed to put in a drill <laughs> yeah. to plant it, they yeah. were already growing, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, soybeans are definitely a huge benefit to antler development, but so, but a lot of antler development has occurred before soybeans emerge from the ground. That's right. Yes. That's right. And, and so. I did a, did a podcast with Kip Adams, Adams talking specifically about that. Mm-hmm. And just that, that development is 60, 70% already occurred in, in some country um, when, when then a soybean has germinated and popped itself out of the ground. We're yeah. well beyond that. And, and this is this is why, let's say, Atlanta Legacy philosophy-wise, we can't steer far away from the ecology and the landscape in our management. If we do that, then we're kind of derailing or, or um, minimizing the success that a, a landowner could experience with a specific parcel. Because if if we don't first understand the the cycles and the needs and requirements on a daily basis that's in tune with what the property can or should be offering, then we're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this conversation becomes really weighty. Um, it goes beyond, let's say that, that, Oh, protein level and food sources, Woody browse this time of the year. It's well beyond that. Um, and if you are a landowner who's doing good practices, but, but missing this boat or realizing, Hey man, there's, there's things that I'm not considering or I, I'm, I'm uh, not in fully understanding the value that you guys are talking about. And th- that's where you take a property to the next level. That's where you really yeah. just kind of you, you're, you're in a region, a good neighborhood. And, and then you just start blowing the top off that the cap that everyone was thinking, oh, that that's a good neighborhood. That's a productive neighborhood. Well, are you doing all the other things are, are, and, and you see the success just kind of really, really take off. That's, yeah. fun. that's really cool to be. Right. Aware. Absolutely. So do we want to go into cyclical use of browse now? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So kind of derailed that Forb conversation. No, 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 it's good. <laughs> it's good. Um, so, you know, let me start out by saying, I think one of the reasons that browse tends to get a bad rap is as I mentioned earlier, it's less digestible and it's lower in nutrient content at the same time. And one of the things that we have to think about from a deer nutrition perspective is that deer are foregut fermenters, you know, basically they're ruminants. So they have to, they have to ferment this forage that they take in 
is like a pre-processing step before the forage passes on into their true acidic stomach to be digested further and then pass into the small intestine. You know, the nutrient absorption comes along with that afterwards. And stuff. I mean, some of it occurs in the chambers of the stomach as well, but um, as it passes through, more of that occurs. So anyways, as a part of that, um, deer are limited in there's, there's basically this relationship between the quality of the food they eat and the time, the amount of time it takes to digest it. So when they eat browse, these woody plants and their parts, they take longer to digest than forbs. So if your stomach is full, it's just like us, you can't eat anymore. Right? Mm. So if your stomach is full of lower quality, of, of lower quality forage, um, and it takes longer to process, then obviously you can't take in as many calories, regardless of what the macronutrient composition of those food items are. And um, in a most extreme example, you know, we, we there's research from the 80s that was done in the Southern Appalachians that showed that, you know, in years of mast crop failure, basically acorn failure, that when deer have to switch over to any woody browse that's available, you know, primarily in that, in that case, it's like rhododendron. Yeah. Um, the processing time of rhododendron is so high and the nutrient content so low that deer can starve to death with a stomach full of that stuff mm-hmm. because they can't process it in time to get the amount of calories that they need out of it. And that's kind of where I think, you know, browse can get a bad rap. Obviously there are browse species that are higher quality than, than rhododendron, but that's kind of where that thinking comes from. Mm-hmm. But if you want to understand you know, just how important browse can be. Um, and the, these proportions change, like the proportions of Forbes that we that I talked about earlier. This is just from some of my own research and experience. You know, we see the peak in that use, as I mentioned earlier, in spring and early summer, where it's about 50% of the diet comprised of Forbes. Um, that drops off tremendously as we get into late summer or early fall, and particularly winter, as those Forbes senesce. But from my data, we see a minimum of about 30 to 40% of the diet comprised of browse on a year-round basis. That's like the lower, lowest number it hits. The, certain, so, so 30 to 40% is the lowest percentage at pretty much any given month throughout the year. Yes. It's comprised of browse. That's right. That's substantial. So browse is ab- is the number one staple in a deer's diet. It's it's basically the foundation of their diet. Mm-hmm. So we'll see it, you know, drop off. Browse will drop off to like thirty to forty percent. When when would you expect that to happen? During the spring. During the spring, when they're using all those forbs, right? Fifty mm-hmm. percent yeah, of their diet is forbs. I was thinking May and June here, but it could be probably April, May. Exactly. Yeah, that's going to shift depending on where you are climate-wise. You know, so here it might be April to May is when you see the high, the greatest usage of Forbes um, and the lowest uses of, usage of browse and maybe shift that a month or two la- later as you move into more northern latitudes. I don't, I don't mean to derail this, and I don't know if there's enough information, uh, research done, but this is more anecdotal and it would make more sense uh, as we discuss it. So I'll kind of throw this scenario out there and – let you guys chew on it for a second so obviously forbs are really really palatable 
and attractive and used 50 percent of their diet spring and early summer but what happens when a land manager goes into a particular stand um maybe of old field and does a growing season um fire and now we have a new flush of forbs would we or would they observe a change and a shift in um forb composition in a diet on a given property a given select population of deer if those forbs were made reavailable and were new and young and tender at a point later in the growing season than maybe what normally would occur naturally occur well i'll answer it that like it you... depends okay go on will <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've been listening to my buddy marcus lashley some lately i i haven't but i'm okay. familiar but yeah. i mean it yeah so uh so I mean, marcus it's gonna it's gonna happen right Right. Yeah. So Marcus, uh, Dr. Lashley, he's a wildlife professor, good friend of mine and colleague down at the University of Florida. And um, he's actually put out some work on this recently where he was able to show that burning later into the growing season reset those forbs and jacked their nutrient content back up to put it to put it in the most simple terms. So. Really, you know, when you see the the use in forbs declining as they senesce later in the season, some of that is a function of seasonality, but some of it's just a function of the age of the plant. Certainly. So if you reduce the age of the plant, you set it back, then that nutrient content increases again. The palatability or the digestibility of that plant increases again as well. So, so we could you, we could essentially intervene with with some nature in the progression mm-hmm. and development of these plants and and almost replicate a another spring green up. Yes. Essentially. Yes. Yeah. I'm, you I'm really you did derail it, Matt. Stuff. You derailed it because now I'm going somewhere. <laughs> I, when we're I talking did. nutrients in 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 wildlife, it's like okay, let's talk crude protein. Let's talk this. In the cattle world, we talk a lot about bricks levels. Are you familiar with that, Will? Nope. You got, okay. you got me out of my comfort so zone. So they now. use they use <laughs> a, 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 a they use this 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 mechanism this this battery operated. Well, you can use other ones, but they they read the sugar levels in these mm-hmm. plants and base it off of the nutrients available and how many how much milk can be produced in dairy cows or how many how many pounds can be gained in beef cows and they base that off of the sugar levels in these plants and they talk about that through that so i'm sitting here because i have a foot in cattle industry and and operating cows and trying to get more gains and we talk bricks levels and nutrients in these plants then we jump over here in the wildlife world and we talk about crude protein and all this and i'm like mm-hmm. why are they not the same we're dealing with the same plants why is one right. camp talk about that and the other camp talks about that and so i'm wondering if there's anybody talking about bricks levels in the wildlife side but maybe not yeah so um like i said adam you've you've safely made you've made me swerve <laughs> from my lane now <laughs> okay but let's jump back into it then <laughs> correct me correct me if i'm wrong but isn't it common to to provide supplemental protein to cattle in spring yes so but you know what it sounds like one of the primary macronutrients that cattle producers concern themselves with is energy as opposed to protein correct 
correct? Yeah. And I mean, energy is certainly important to deer as well in the time of the year when it becomes most important. I mean, it's important year round, right? Yep. But it becomes most important during fall and winter. Yep. What's interesting and why I tie that together is because you don't see cattle farmers other than guys doing patch burn grazing, things like that. But what you see is guys talking about, yeah, if you graze basically the first rotation of grazing and then mm-hmm. bringing back, for example, it's kind of the regenerative side, but they graze cows and then that new growth that's coming up, they graze sheep or pigs or goats on it and they're like the le- the bricks levels are so high there's so much more nutrients in that second level or that second grazing than there was the first that's exactly what this fire is is setting back that older vegetation yeah. and bringing up new and it's higher and it's more nutritious right and part of that has to do i would i would presume with the total digestible energy yeah which which is going to be a net product that is you know, related not only to the energy content of the plant, but how much of that is usable to the animal based on the structural carbohydrates or basically the fiber content of the plant. Yeah. And as the plant ages, we know that, you know, it becomes, you know, more lignified, especially for woody plants or has a greater ratio of structural to non-structural carbohydrates, making it less digestible. Gotcha. And so, and so basically to get, to pull back from that technicality a little bit, I'm sure somebody's probably falling asleep by now, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, you're, you're making the plant younger and more nutritious. I mean, if you had to go out, it's just a simple, a simple anecdote. If you had to go out and eat a part of a blackberry plant, you would much rather eat one that's just, you know, freshly emerged from the ground a few weeks ago and doesn't even have any thorns on it yet. It's all just young, tender, succulent growth. Then you would want to go bite off the end of a two-year-old stalk of blackberry. No doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. Absolutely. So. And, and, and I think in a different way, this is, this is another way to explain why disturbance and why fire on the landscape is so incredibly valuable. If we know that this forb is packed and great with, with protein and growth levels and you know taking the deer's physiology and and building more muscle and mass and antler growth whatever why not try and replicate that again during the same growing season and and try and double your efforts Um, right and and that's great that's a great window to do that in and and have that manipulation of the landscape the vegetation offer that again um but i don't want to derail it from also the value that the woody browse has because they're still eating that throughout every portion of the year too. Right. And I mean, I think this is where, I mean, I'm sure this is the first time we've probably said it, this podcast and it won't be the last This is where diversity starts to come in. Yes. And the more that you understand the, like I said earlier, the big picture, the ecology of the species and how it's needs to change as a function of seasons and, and stage in their life history, the more you appreciate why diversity is required to, meet the needs during all those different periods yeah absolutely Uh, matt to go with that with that question about the burning you know you and chad did that burn in august i think it was yes yes. in a patch of i mean you were trying to set back cerisa cerisa lespedeza and uh you know it was very thick with cerisa and you guys hammered it and you know Mm -hmm. in the last two weeks we turned the cows back and rotated them through that through that 
paddock or that pasture and a couple of those paddocks have parts of that burn in it. And we've got right. six, seven inch tall cerisa, which earlier in the summer, the cows didn't touch the cerisa. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it should be no surprise other than the fact that the cows are eating cerisa lespedeza now, because now it's a six inch tall, very, uh, palatable, very tender sprig of cerisa. So we have cows eating cerisa lespedeza, which is kind of shocking. So, Adam, am I hearing you correctly that you're advocating for, for planting cerisa lespedeza for deer? That is not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> I just find it that you can take something so bad and change it Absolutely. with fire, which is so good, and go, oh, now they actually will eat it. And and the only thing I bring that up is, you know, to use that, that we change it with fire. But also, you know, when you look at charts like Dr. Craig Harper's book, and you can look at all the crude protein levels of things, different plants. Cerise Lespedes is on one of those, and it's like a 38 or a 32. Yeah. It's in the 30s. It's so much higher than everything else. And it's just like, yeah. man, I wish they would eat that stuff. Yeah, yeah, except the, the tannin content so high. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, that – I don't want to derail us too far from talking about these seasonal trends, but that that, that – what I just mentioned in terms of tannin content, that's another important consideration for diversity in the diet because different plants have sec- different secondary compounds like tannins yep. that are in some cases, the plants have evolved to have those is defensive compounds against herbivory. Certainly. And so if an animal eats too much of that one thing, it can become toxic or affect their other, you know, physiological process processes or affect their ability to, to digest. Yep. So again, you know, that's another reason that diversity is so important. And look, you know, everybody, I think, including myself, sometimes wants a simple answer. Um, but it's important not to not to accept those simple answers at face value and just look for, oh, he said, if I burn late in the growing season, I'm resetting those plants and making them more nutritious again. I should do that everywhere. It's like, no, you might do that on one part of your property, but you have another part of your property that you burn during late winter. So when those antlers do start growing at the very first um, inkling of spring, you're already providing that protein there before the soybeans are even out of the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and or you're not setting back your, your woody browns. that's going to be available for that, that December, January, right. February timeframe. And so that's when we have to start thinking about diversity and fire returns. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so just trying to, you know, get back, steer us back to that, those annual trends and food habits. Um, you know, we, not surprisingly, we see lower, but still substantial use, you know, like, like I said, 30 to 40% of the diets comprised of browse during spring and early summer. And then as you would expect, as summer wanes on, um, forbs in the diet start to decline, they're becoming less available. They're senescing unless we burn them. <laughs> Um, that's when you start to see, you know, browse in the diet start to increase again. And, um, around like late summer, early fall. And from some of my data, we see, you know, 50 to 60% of the diet is comprised of browse. That's substantial. Right. And so substantial as we get into, as we get into October, November, what would you guys guess happens to the percentage of brows in the diet from there? Well, I think I think a mass a mass production is going to uh, absolutely play a large role in that. 
Absolutely. I hope I'm not putting you guys on the spot too much. <laughs> oh, no, I, <laughs> but, you're I getting, but, but you're getting them right so far. Um, yeah. yeah, that's being exactly interviewed right. interviewed on our own podcast. I like it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> First time. This is why we don't have that's guests. A, <laughs> that's <kidding>. exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, you know when those acorns start to fall, yep. it drops back down some because you know it's, it's not uncommon at all to see you know, 50% of a deer's diet comprised of acorns when they're available. Okay, what mm-hmm. happens if they're not available? Importance of browse increases again. It so, seems and, to me like <clears throat> it's the absolute baseline foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is what you said earlier. But but when based on different cycles uh, of green up and frost and um, of of mass production on different years. Um, that level of four, excuse me, of woody browse is going to spike and increase off of that, let's say, baseline or average of at least 35 to 40% across mm-hmm. the year. But it's always going to be the staple, that foundation. And then each year or in each time of the year, uh, based on these different resources you have on a property, it's going to sway back and forth. But you don't go anywhere without. Yeah. It's, it's the home base. Like, it, exactly. to me, it, it, it's home base. When other things become available, they will leave. But whenever yes. that is no longer available, they come back to home base. That's exactly right. I mean, so, you know, getting into a deer's head right now, if I'm a buck walking around in the woods and, you know, we have, there's so many, there's so many reasons to fall back on browse. I mean, we've already mentioned a couple uh-huh. of them. Seasonality can drive you back to browse. Mast failures can drive you back to browse. Drought yes. can drive you back to browse. And so I'm walking around in the landscape. I'm a buck, and I'm thinking of browse as like my security blanket. You know, oh, that's right. if all else fails, I can I can generally revert back to browse. And and this is this is the exact point in the podcast where hopefully everyone's realizing, gosh. I need to care more about browse and managing forest and having young regeneration come back into those stands because it is the foundation of the diet, regardless of what protein content is of, of a soybean, that is what matters. Big right. deer grow and have never eaten a soybean leaf in their life because Absolutely. they're probably browsing and have access to a large amount of browse from the time it was born to whenever it was harvested. And they may not have ever eaten a soybean or a sprig of alfalfa or yeah. anything else. Woody browse is the baseline. And it, 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 it's just like you said, it's a security blanket for a buck, but go into the, the mind of a land manager or landowner. You should be considering that as a security blanket for your management as well. If yep. they're going to rely so heavily on it, why don't we rely so heavily on it? Make sure that it is always readily available yep. any point of the, the year, calendar year, and then be managing it to always, let's say, be within uh, within reach or yep. new shoots right. coming back. Let's take a pause here and thank our partners who make this happen to steal chainsaws, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know – I'm glad you brought that up because the average property that you go on, most of the browse biomass is in the canopy. Oh, yeah. You know, so, 
and I talked about this, I think, with you guys on the on the last podcast, probably because I talk about it all the time. But when we manage forests, um, we are making decisions about where we want to allocate biomass. Mm-hmm. And we make those decisions by deciding where the sunlight hits. If the sunlight hits the canopy, that's where our biomass is. More sunlight hits the ground, that's where more of our biomass is going to be. Well, 100%. It's that simple. And it, and it doesn't need to be taken really that much more. It's <clears throat> allocate the energy from the sun to the plants at the right height, and they will grow, and you will offer woody brows. And you may right. need to manipulate some of that 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 growth if you're in a heavy invasive area yeah. that mm-hmm. doesn't have the same forage uh, opportunities but you do that on a site-to-site basis but foundationally it's applicable woody browse is applicable to everyone who's listening who's trying to improve a property for white right. right now yep. yeah so then just continuing our seasonal trends you know as long as that mast is available it, they stay on the mast as much as they can um, in the event of a failure year, as we've already talked about, and as those acorns are become less available as they're consumed or they're no longer, you know, viable or, or they start to rot or whatever, um, deer, of course, you know, peak again in their use of browse during the late winter period. And, you know, that, that peak is probably more and more amplified, I would guess, the further that you go north. No, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Matt, Absolutely. we just talked about this last week of, of comparing yep. the northern management and southern management and then kind of the in-between where we're at. Mm-hmm. You know, you could say Midwest, but that's kind of we're talking more Missouri, Kentucky, Virginia, Central North attitudes. Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you go up north. Uh, I think it's easier to manage for whitetail deer than it is where you're at, Will. Um the long growing season, different, uh, so many other variables that come into play. But you go up north and it's like, oh, look, there's very little woody browse and there's trees everywhere. And most of these are not so good quality. Let's just start cutting trees. And all of a sudden you look like the best property in the neighborhood. And really all you had to do was put some woody browse available. And naturally occurring, there are... You, you can find so many different options when it comes to shrubs, shrub communities available in the north. When you have open um, open sky in the timber, generally you're going to get some shrubs that come back. Um, yeah. Aspens, alders, choke cherries, plums. I mean, you name it, they're coming. Whether it's right. a swamp, whether, you know, bottomland stuff and upland sites, that shrub community in the northern, northern latitudes is very prevalent on a managed site, or it, it, you can expect it to be pretty prevalent, let's say, on, on a managed uh, site, just from naturally what, what should be and does occur. So, right. Nat- right, naturally, that, that area, that region is going to supply what the wildlife need, um, which is a heavier component of woody browse available. Therefore, lots of shrubs. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I mean, also even down here, the general trend we see in some of the research that I've done that I I talked about um, in a much greater level of detail in my last podcast with you guys and I will today. But even in those areas where we're doing canopy reduction and prescribed fire, whether it be in hardwoods or pines, the first few years after you you reduce the canopy, you allow sunlight in. um, Would you guys think... I'm going to keep interviewing you. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Would you guys think this is an easy one? This is softball. 
total biomass of deer forage for those first few years after you reintroduce sunlight to the ground is greater in stands that are thinned only or stands that are thinned and burned? Uh, thinned and burned. Total biomass. I'm going thinned and burned. Uh, oh. Well, if you're burning, you're going to reduce it. You're reducing biomass. it, so it just thin. That's right. Yeah, that's just right. Thinned. But the quality is yeah. probably better thinned and burned. And I think so, yeah, that's, when, this when is when we get into the, the conversation about quality and quantity. Right on. So what what's that time frame that you're saying after years following? Are we talking to three years? Are we talking up to five? What, what? Yeah, like those, those first, you know, three, four, five years after the canopy is reduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just thinned. So if you're just looking, yeah. So if you're just looking at total biomass, um, it's going to be greatest in the areas that were just thin because you know what do we what do we use fire to do? Generally, we're trying to decrease woody and increase herbaceous, yeah. right? right. Forbs and yeah. we're trying to increase forbs and grasses. So yeah. fire is very effective at reducing uh, woody browse. So when you do that um, and you leave the forbs behind, sure the forbs are higher quality for summer forage, but you have reduced the biomass. Yeah, sure. Um, but then I just had this conversation with one of my graduate students the other day. Um, shout out to Dylan. <laughs> you know, we were talking about his data set that shows exactly this. And, you know, the point that I made to him, because he was kind of thinking along this line, he's like, well, if you just want to maximize biomass, you know, you probably shouldn't burn. And I said, what's going to happen? Yes. 10, de- 10 years down the road, what's the biomass in that stand going to look like? it's going to increase in height, right? That Look, biomass is going to start moving. Accessibility. Yeah, it's going to start moving back up towards the sunlight. And then it's no longer in a deer's reach. So just because fire in the short term reduces overall biomass of deer forage, if you want to keep that forage within a deer's reach, it is required. Yes. Did we lose him? No, I'm here. Okay. Oh, okay. I must have. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, 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 thought, <laughs> I thought you'd lost you there for a second. No, yeah. it's a hundred. It's a hundred percent required. You have to go back and, and intervene, and and that's why I think is 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 lost. Everyone you know has this manipulation of maybe a timber harvest or or some some sort of uh, intervention of a forest stand improvement project, and and they're like, great, that's wonderful. They see benefits for the next following years. And then it just reverts back into into what it was. Maybe just a mm-hmm. shorter height, and and so there has to be a consistent um, intervention and disturbance. And fire is that wonderful tool that can achieve that. Yeah. Um, but but let's say let's say you take a hundred acre stand that you've thinned, and and you can then further break it up. You don't have to apply fire the same interval or, or at the same disturbance level across the whole hundred acres, you could do a 40 acre chunk and, and then maybe a 30 acre chunk and then another 30 acre chunk. And maybe at the th- one thirty you do, um, uh, after, after thinning, you, you introduce fire two years time frame, then another portion yep. of that hundred acres, you do four years. And, and then now you just got this further manipulation of, of, uh, the plant communities, the vegetation heights and structures yes. all across this hundred acre block that was or could have been managed um, 
in, in, a, in a simple one-time disturbance that all would have regenerated at the exact same rate. Right. And that's exactly the approach that I take um, when I'm working with landowners and, and trying to help them figure out how to set up the property. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at as far as managing the uplands um, down here with the length of the growing season that we have and the amount of precipitation we get every year, usually my baseline fire return interval for managing for deer forage and cover is going to be somewhere around three years, fire every three years. Um, but I oftentimes block, uh, so I'll burn most of the area on that, on that fire return interval, but then I'll choose, you know, like 30 to 30 to 40% of those areas that are going to be burned. And then I'm going to designate those as areas where I'm going to do a little bit more frequent fire with the intent of managing those areas for more forbs, um, for more summer nutrition. So, and that, and that's not to say that I don't have forbs at all in the areas with a three-year return interval. I still do, but I also have browse there and I also have soft mass to there. Right. Absolutely. Hmm. I just don't think that, well, and, and we talked about it last, last week on the podcast too. And I had texted you, um, I was down in Georgia working with Frank, and um, that 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 site specifically is doing larger timber management blocks, but but not going back and further breaking up um, that rotation and disturbance. And so there are big chunks. It was like, okay, we have we have disturbance present on the property, but but that follow up management um, just kind of continued that just the typical timber type rotation. So mm-hmm. someone would have said and looked at the place and said, wow, that looks diverse, and and it is from the stages of, of some regeneration, but when you're taking, this was a larger property, but when you're taking a hundred or 200 acre type blocks and doing these massive harvests, that's still a big 200 acre block from a wildlife standpoint that can further be broken up to, to increase the diversity within that 200 acres mm-hmm. and changing, manipulating core areas and, and offering you know, maybe it's uh, preferred brooding cover or just more a higher forb component in that 200 acre stand is extremely valuable for wildlife. That That's kind of marrying, uh, let's say, production timber management into a wildlife minded property who still yeah. wants to have timber value on the property and, and manage it and achieve harvest on a semi, you know, type rotation uh, of harvest. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. Is is there are there any other um, let's say annual forage that we need to discuss in like the cycle of of a of a year here? Um, you know, I know I know some some things we haven't talked about like soft mass pre- prevalence or right or, uh, sedges, uh, how they might play into it, or or funguses might play into the diets, but most of those, those three categories are very small potatoes. Yeah, um, they are small. I mean, we do, um, just to give a little bit of, of credit to those, they still are worthy of some discussion, but they are a relatively minor component of the diet. You know, we see peaks in use of mushrooms, um, you know, around late summer, early fall. And, you know, while they may represent a relatively small proportion of the diet, you know, part of that is because they're so highly digestible a lot of the ways we study deer food habits is difficult to detect how much of that a deer is eaten. I mean, I know that like you guys have probably seen this too, you know, I've sat there 
in turkey season in spring um, and had a deer come up and, and watch them eat mushrooms in front of me. Uh, that's typically when I've seen it. But, yeah, they, they definitely use mushrooms. It's hard to determine really the importance of their diet. They're really, you know, mushrooms are, um, I think it's, gosh, I'm going to mess this up. Somebody's going to call me out. <laughs> <laughs> They're high in either calcium or phosphorus. I can't remember which one. Um, so that, that can be an important component. I think it's phosphorus. Um, like I said, somebody will call me out if I am wrong. Um, so that micronutrient can be important. Um, we also see, you know, um, one thing that I think is interesting is we see peaks in mast usage, um, kind of in early summer and then again in fall. So everybody knows what the major peak in mast usage is in fall. It's acorns, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also some soft mast, particularly um, in the south, like muscadons and persimmons are a huge component of deer diets um, in the early fall. And those those fall soft mast tend to be more associated with later successional cover types, you know, forest and woodlands uh, more so. But we also see a, spe- uh, a spike in mast usage, um, like I said, during the early summer. And that tends to be things like blackberries, which are more common in earlier successional areas. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's kind of an interesting trend to point out that a lot of people don't think about. And again, indicates the need for diversity. Yes. Here's been I, I, my I, I, thoughts. And, and I guess the way I try to try to look at a property or, or look at all these different because on the graph you shared on social media, um, you can look at the different time frames. Like there's there's uh, there's the Forb component, there's the heart or the mass component. Um, mm-hmm. Then you have the fungi and um, all these different things, and then kind of the base going anywhere from thirty to sixty. I I think if I remember correctly of of, of browse. Yeah. All those others are like supplements or or kind of yeah. like if you the more that great, that means that they're hopefully not over browsing your your woody brows. They're not mm-hmm. basing that. And so like in in a lot of places we visit, woody brows is so limited that it's getting pounded throughout the year too hard and then you don't even have these other things to help take the deer herd off of eating the woody brows to go eat these other things and you're like the whole system is out of whack because there's just not enough food in any category available right right yeah that's a really good point and interestingly you know when i was i was prepping uh to talk to you guys i went i wanted to go back through and look at some of the some of the literature and look at journal articles pertaining specifically to browse, but the, the vast majority, I would say probably 90% of the articles that you find about white-tailed deer and browse, they're talking about the effect of white-tailed deer browsing on tree regeneration mm-hmm. yep. because it's such a problem. Yes. <laughs> you know, and historically in the Northeast, uh, it's really been a problem and com- yeah. yeah and, and completely altered the successional trajectory in the forest species composition mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. And, and again, there's another great example of how the land and wildlife that live on it, there's not two separate things. You have an overproductive uh, deer population and a underwhelming lack of forest regeneration. They're, they're very uh, tightly tied together 
in those, Absolutely. Like, in those states. So you've got to manage I, the both of those. I think about the National yeah. Forest, or, or not the National Forest, but the state forest that I drove through consulting in, in Pennsylvania and the locals all talking about, oh man, you just there's too many deer. They're eating all the eating all the forest regeneration, and I'm like, I drove through 50 miles of trees that are over 50 foot tall, and I didn't yeah. see hardly any timber being cut. No wonder yeah. you're blaming the deer. Like, I don't know. I'm sorry, Will, if you don't agree with this, but I'm going to get on a soapbox and say. Maybe we should print our emails more, help the timber industry, because there's too many trees in a lot of our country that, like, oh, my gosh, they're dying standing. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe we, that would solve part of the problem is give the deer more woody browse. Yeah, we're not nearly as shy about cutting trees in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. In that situation, you really are faced with two options. You either manage the forest uh, to increase carrying capacity or you decrease the deer back down to the appropriate carrying capacity. Yeah. I got a third option. Both. Both. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, it's spot on. Um, So many people are in those boats or or you go to um, a semi uh, suburban area and the deer population levels are just sky high, well above carrying capacity. And there's, yep. there's the same situation there. Invasive loads are now drastically increasing because the lack of preference and food source that they offer because yeah. there's no competition from the native forages because it's being browsed out from existence. And yeah. um, it, it's just a, a, a very common scene. Yeah. But the people but there's a lot of people who, who are, if you will, numb to it because they truly have not witnessed quality sites yeah. and sites that are are very diverse yeah and, this is uh yeah go ahead i was just gonna say you, you you can imagine what a what a a a healthy forest would look like and with multi-ages and multi-species and and a good understory developing you can imagine what we're talking about but but you can't accurately picture it if you haven't physically seen it yeah that's right and uh, I don't want to take us too far off on a tangent here, but Matt, since you brought it up, um, I challenge people that live in neighborhoods that that have you know abundant deer populations mm-hmm. to to uh, closely observe when they see deer. And it may or may not align with what I've seen, but we have that problem in my neighborhood, for example. And you know, it's a it's a matrix of lawns that's mostly surrounded by mature forest. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're a close steward of the land or a naturalist you observe these types of things you think about them like i do being a a wildlife slash habitat nerd and um you know you assign meanings to them and what i've noticed is that we see the highest deer usage of landscaping plants um during the late summer period Mm. and what i what i attribute that to is what's happening is during the spring and very early part of the summer period, you know, the forest isn't managed properly for those deer to have forage away from the yards, but that time of the year is so productive. Like we talked about with Forbes that they're able to come up here and there the new browse that comes up is fairly nutritious at that time of the year. So they can stay out of those yards because they don't want to be there. Yeah. They don't want to expose themselves to the danger of vehicles, dogs, people, all that stuff. So you don't see them much. 
But then as those forbs start to senesce, like we talked about earlier in the late summer period, and they're having to switch over more to browse or alternative or alternative species, they're willing to expose themselves to that risk and to come out into these yards uh, to meet their nutritional requirements. But then as soon as the acorns turn on, they're gone. Right. You know, you're saying, just, you're saying they really don't want to eat Nana's hostas. <laughs> that's right i don't know they like hostas a lot but they even come out and eat my they eat my rhododendron <laughs> oh, but they're telling you they're telling you what they need mm-hmm. when you pay attention they tell you what they need absolutely and, and if you're in tune with what's occurring on the landscape and and what they are doing um you can pick up greatly on exactly what you're talking about and 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 it it can be in your yard or it could be on your hunting property exactly Um, but we can't expect to to produce top quality let's say wildlife individuals whether you're looking for for older age class bucks that are have really healthy sets of antlers just giants you can't expect that if you don't have options and availability and kind of, if you will, built in insurance to the availability of food sources on your property, or you have to rely on your neighbors to pick up what you buy. And and most people aren't willing to, on a recreational side, willing to say my neighbors is better than mine. Yeah. When they're putting in effort to try and be a, a good land manager, but Matt, if you're in tune, you'll 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 see maybe a shift in deer movements, or I'm not seeing as many lately. What's what are you missing on on your property? Yeah, and I mean I know we've talked a lot about deer today, but this happens all the time, and I know you guys see it with turkeys. Mm-hmm. People have turkeys during deer season, but then during the spring turkey season, the turkeys are gone. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's because they don't have you know quality. Um, quality strutting, nesting, yeah. rearing habitat. Almost a flip 180. Like yes, deer exactly. during that spring time frame, they get food everywhere. But then during that time frame for turkeys, they're like, it's too thick. It's too thick. Yeah. I can't take yeah. my pulse because we get soaked and then we freeze. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Matt, you bring up a point when you say to to increase and and, and improve the productiveness of the of the deer. Uh, basically you make it sound like we're sitting on like neutral, like, but we could make them so much better. And I'm wondering, Will, if you would, if there's parts of the country, cause I, I believe there are that they aren't even seeing the median of, of productivity for deer. They're seeing the very low, uh, productiveness of the, of the deer herd because, Food is so limited. Woody Browse, yep. the home base, is so limited. And I'm talking specifically like parts of Michigan and Pennsylvania and places where guys are like, they, they, you know, a 115-inch buck, that's a trophy here. Well, yeah. the, the the productiveness is so, like, the top tier going, well, we really are productive, is so far out of reach because the habitat or the the woody browse availability is so low that then they pour on on Forbes so quickly that that window of time that may be a couple of months for most of the country is is three weeks for them because that's all they have. Yeah, the first place that comes to mind like that for me is the Appalachians. Yeah. Um, 
and that's because you know they extend all the way down here into northeastern Alabama and northern Georgia. Um, but that you know is a vast swath of heavily forested areas. You know that they. I feel like um, you know growing up and, and, and like even just going back to the '90s, um, driving around, there used to be a lot more small farms interspersed throughout that landscape. Um, but you know a lot of those have diminished over time. But the ones that are even still there you know, the openings are, are primarily covered in exotic cool season grasses, mm, Right. you know? Yeah. And that's one thing that we, that we haven't talked about much, but, um, you know, from my data, the peak in grass use that we see during any time of the year is really during late winter. And it's still only 10 to 15% of the diet. Grasses. Um, and most of that's just going to be, and most of oh. that's because we're picking up cereal grains. Yeah. Okay. Right. I wondered Plant about that or riparian grains. areas of like, river oats where they're really young yeah. and that they're starting to grow and you're like i'm not sure if deer really would eat that but if that's all there's there i've seen them eat that okay. right right so even those those few sparsely distributed open areas throughout the appalachians you know a lot of times don't have very high quality forage mm-hmm. um just due to how they're how they're managed and what's planted there they have the they have the potential um they just haven't been given the opportunity uh is there much timber operations going on in that in that mountain range, like heavy, you know, logging? It depends on where you go. Um, I have found that, like, you know, a lot of that's national forest too. Ah. Yes. And um, I have found wow. that wow. some of the <laughs> I have found that some of the national forest in Alabama, um, you know, they're they're doing some active timber management there, but you know, a big problem that you know, I dealt when I dealt with the national forest in Georgia, um, you know, when I was a graduate student at UGA and stuff like that, they their hands were largely tied by environmental groups, you know, yeah. suing any kind of timber sale proposal that they would put forward for, you know, public hearing. Yeah, that that That's and the, some, of the other, some of the other challenges uh, specific. There's a there's a large paper mill on the western portion, kind of southwest portion of Virginia. And um, a couple of challenges is this distance to that mill like doesn't yeah. even make sense and then yeah. because the, the number of mills available that can handle um and, and i guess the other thing is too the slow growingness of the timber is so your just your disturbance and your interval of, of timing in between those cuts is so much longer on some of these poor sites and getting to them yes like like you can't get to some of these slopes so or you've got to go you gotta you gotta haul over top of a mountain just to get to the one side, and you have to then cut through. If you if you don't cut through national forest, you cut through two other neighbors. You gotta get right. permission to be able to do it. There's just a lot of challenges to active, ongoing, uh, repetitive, short interval disturbances yeah. in let's say a given smaller area that would say yeah. that's productive, that's yeah. doing well. By the time you yeah. find a logging operation that will do it. You've got permission to get it done, or if you're government sector, you finally got things lined up, and then you got a lawsuit on your hands that delays it, and you're out right. of luck. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, that so that is an important so- issue that yeah. you guys brought up is that um, just you know demand for lumber throughout those areas and places to process it are limiting. And to my understanding, a lot of the a lot of the you know steep topography logging operations in the eastern United States have been lost over time. 
Um, and that's something, you know, they're still set up to do well out West and they do a lot of it out there, but not as much of it in the East. Certainly. I mean, I, I've been on several, several sites in Virginia where, you know, you're, you're taking a dozer in first just to be able to make a trail on the side of a mountain for a mm-hmm. skitter to pull. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's bad. Right. Uh, or it's just, it's difficult. And so that, that much more time energy spent to pull slow growing timber off poorer sites. I mean, it's, there's just right. so many challenges to it to again, have that frequent disturbance that sure. you can get in a different landscape. Yeah. Right. And I don't think this is a solution at a landscape scale, but certainly at the property level for the landowner, you know, one of the things that they can consider in those situations is non-commercial forest stand improvement using herbicide uh-huh. injection. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. Oh man. So much good stuff here. Yeah. I enjoyed it guys. Yeah. All right. I always enjoy it. And, you know, the last time when we ended the conversation, I was like, whew, that's one of the best ones we've done. So many, so much good information. Here we are again. I'm going to hang up and say, and Matt's going to call me and I'm going to say, that was a really good podcast. We want to make sure we save that one. So when listeners <laughs> ask us about Woody Browse, we can send them that link and, uh, and it, it, yeah. right here. So you may just become a, a reoccurring guest on the podcast, Will. All right. Well, you guys let me know if there's something else you want to talk about. Be glad to do it. <laughs> appreciate well, it. Certainly appreciate your time and, and uh, that information you're able to share with everyone listening and just further, uh, let's say, give, give that fuel and passion for what it is, the, the, the habitat techniques that we're promoting out there to everyone and, and give more validity to the importance of active management opposed to sitting idle and seeing what shows up on a trail camera. Yeah. Stop right, messaging yeah. me about what food plot to plant. Start asking me what chainsaw to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate it guys. A lot of this stuff is common sense that about anybody could figure out. I just, you know, have happened to have had more time to think about it than most have. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks guys. Yeah.